pray together. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Probably uh, one of the world's most famous paintings is Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. Sorry for the um, pronunciation there. My accent isn't quite good enough to uh, pronounce his surname properly. But one of the reasons it is so uh, well known is because it comes out of the imagination of its creator. Uh, This painting um, is a bit symbolic of the life of Vincent van Gogh, who was a man who uh, actually had very severe mental health issues and spent a significant amount of time of his life in a uh, a psychotic institution um, for his illness. And uh, over that time between the beginning of his uh, art career and the end, his paintings changed. But their beauty did not, interestingly. At the beginning, he used lighter tones, and uh, then as people have interpreted his paintings in, uh, since he's died, they've realised that later he used darker tones to express something beautiful about the world. Starry Night is well known because of the dark tones that he uses to convey great beauty. It's interesting because people recognise that in this particular painting, It came out of his imagination, not particularly from him looking at any constellation in the night sky because they cannot line up any constellation in the night sky with the painting itself. People have said that it's a masterpiece that even exceeds its creator. It seems to be quite unique. They're alluding that there might be something bigger even than Vincent van Gogh that is at work in this masterpiece. Now, Vincent uh, was a Christian. He believed in Jesus. And he actually gave glory to God for the gift that God had given him in the painting. So it makes a bit of sense, doesn't it, that people look at the magnificence and the intrigue and the beauty of a painting and maybe even look beyond its creator to someone above him who may have inspired him. Now, when we go to the museum or in fact the art gallery in particular for, um, for Vincent van Gogh's painting Starry Night. We go, we look at the painting and we think, wow, what an amazing artist. We think that artist captured something that we struggle to put into words but we can see. We don't look at the painting and go, oh praise be the painting. In very much the same way, God has created this world. And the Apostle Paul, in his analysis of where humanity went wrong in history, has said, we have stopped worshipping the Creator and we have begun to worship creation. Things are out of order. And the human disorder that we experience from day to day comes out of a misalignment We have lowered our sights. It's as if you went to the art gallery and go, oh, praise be this painting. But the painting did not make itself. There was an artist. And the same way, we have a great 
capital A artist who put this world together in all its beauty and all its goodness. And to him, we owe the worship and the glory forever. This morning, as we continue our series through the book of Genesis, we're looking at foundations for life. We're going to explore uh, these verses which you've had read out to you, this account of creation. First, I want to explain to you about the worldview of creation that we see in our text. I explained this in a, a short detail last week, but Genesis is a worldview shaping document. It is a document that says this is how God has made the world and this is the lens with which you are to look upon everything you see with your relationships as well. So your relationship to God, your relationships to one another and your relationship to the rest of the created world around you. It informs how we think. Tradition tells us that Moses was the uh, recorder or the author of the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis. Notice, though, Moses was not there. In fact, scholars have found that it's very interesting how detailed, how historical, how open about human fault and sin the book of Genesis is and how uniquely comprehensive and unified it is that they cannot but... Uh, evaluate that it is an historical document, although it has many supernatural themes to it. Literary scholars find it very difficult to look at Genesis and go, this is not history, because of the way that it stands out compared to all the other creation myths. Creation myths from other nations like the Babylonian creation myth, Enuma Elish, are distinctly mythological. They don't look like reality. And it's interesting the, the themes that they use, particularly this uh, Babylonian creator myth, which was in circulation about the same time uh, as the people of Israel were with Moses uh, in uh, a few millennia ago B.C., uh, the Babylonians had an idea that the world was created out of a war of the gods. And the gods were just as bad as people, as it turns out. They were filled with debauchery, filled with violence. You know, they were deceiving one another and being deceived themselves. And humanity, get this, was created as slaves for the gods. And in fact, if you look, have a, take a careful look at every creation myth, around the world, about this time, they all have similar themes. They, you know, the humanity arises because they were made by the gods to be slaves, so the gods didn't have to work. Uh, they all have a pantheon of gods or different gods fighting one another, vying for power, sometimes behaving worse than humans. You see that uh, with the Greek gods, you see that with the Roman gods, Gods. You see that with the Babylonians and others throughout human history that people have come up with to explain how the world looks. This worldview-shaping document, Enuma Elish, is so different to the Bible. It tells us that the world is made up of chaos, violence, that systemic equality, inequality like caste systems where some people are born lower than others is how things ought to be. 
And of course, you find that most cultures have had that embedded in their traditions since day dot. We see that the gods themselves are bad or worse than humans. In this, though, worldview-shaping document, things are very different. In Genesis, we see there is one God. In Genesis, we see he is unopposed. In Genesis, we see that God is authoritative. He speaks and the world is made. In Genesis, we see a God that declares his creation is good. And in Genesis, we see that our God works and then he rests. He does the work. He makes humanity out of an expression of his love and creativity, not to domineer and enslave. There is another uh, creation myth today, and it's called the Big Bang Theory. The Big Bang Theory. My brief explanation of it goes like this. Somehow, a very long time ago, there was an enormous explosion, and everything came from nothing that we see today, eventually, after billions of years. Now, that's a very poor uh, and condensed explanation, but the main themes are there. It's difficult to explain what happened very, very long ago, but somehow everything came from nothing and nobody started it. What we see today with incredible levels of complexity that we can't even barely comprehend, let alone recreate, we believe came from nothing and no one. At least that's what the Big Bang Theory proposes. This worldview-shaping document gives the modern world a basis of meaninglessness. If everything came from nothing and from nobody, then there is no meaning and purpose in the world. The idea of natural selection, that is, might is right, has been part of the forming of this world according to the Big Bang Theory and evolution. Therefore, we should accept that might is right. We should, the weak should rule, o- uh, so the, the strong should rule over the weak. The rich should rule over the poor, at least according to uh, evolution and according to the Big Bang Theory, that's how things ought to work and they've always worked that way. The problem with that, of course, is that we don't believe that and yet some of us still believe the Big Bang. Unfortunately, our modern scientific method also disagrees with our world view because in our modern scientific method we want things that are repeatable and observable and yet we can't repeat or observe what happened six billion years ago, apparently. The Big Bang Theory is full, uh, is, has some particular holes in it, but one of the holes I want to point out for our current era is this, is that in Genesis chapter 1, God makes an evaluation, a moral evaluation of his creation and he declares it to be good. He doesn't declare it to be there, he doesn't declare that there's a fact, he gives it a moral evaluation and says creation is good which means that we have a basis for justice in our world. Because if there is good, there is bad. And yet if we believe that everything came from nothing and nobody, we have no basis for justice in our world. And I've got to tell you, no one lives like that. 
So whilst we might dismiss Enuma Elish and the Babylonian creation myth as a myth, because, you know, they're old world and traditional culture and, you know, believe in many gods and sort of these battles, um, you know, in the supernatural world. We disregard those things. We must also look at our inherent uh, creation myths today and look at them with clear eyes. Imagine the microchip. You know, microchips are getting smaller and smaller and they are incredibly intricate. You know, that they talk about the modern computer can do uh, something that it took warehouses of computers to do 30 or 40 years ago with a chip this big or smaller. And they're, they're making them in so, so small that you can only work on them with a microscope, with a very powerful microscope. Now, if I was to bring to you a microchip and you were to look at it, you would instantly say, somebody made this, would you not? Somebody made this. This could not have arisen on its own. No reasonable person would expect that a microchip had arisen on its own. The human body is incredibly more complex than the microchip. And get this, the human body lives. It is alive. Life itself is so unique we cannot recreate it. Scientists cannot make life. We cannot make something out of nothing. And so logically and reasonably, we must look at this world and deduce somebody made the world. I'm going to bag out just one more time on um, the Big Bang Theory. I'm sorry if you hold that dear, but I think this needs to be said. Uh, in physics, Newton's third law, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. I'm glad some of us did uh, year 10 physics at school. Um, I, I just, I think, scraped through. But I remembered that one, at least. What that means is if something big happens, something big started it. Something does not come from nothing. In every instance, using our scientific method, we repeatedly and make observations on things that have cause and effect. And so if there w was a big bang, then you must ask the question, who started it? You must ask the question, who started it? And they must be bigger. They must be powerful. They must be able to make this world and everything in it and this universe and everything in it with incredible intricacy down to the atomic level and beyond and in the great cosmic scale that we can't even comprehend. We have an amazing and incredible God, whether you believe in him or not. But you must, we must actually use our powers of reason, God-given powers of reason and logic to look at these things and go, Genesis makes good sense. Genesis makes good sense of our world, but it challenges, and I won't deny that it absolutely challenges our modern secular worldview in every way. And that's a good thing. And that's a good thing. We need it. So what does a biblical worldview show us from Genesis, from our verses today? That creation is not random, but purposeful. There is a clear creator and his name is God. There is a singular creator, 
and he has a clear order and a clear authority. He deems things good. There is a moral nature to his creation and he deems it good. There is a great harmony in creation. It all works together. Often uh, I talk with my children about ecosystems and how incredible and amazing and a sign of God's work is that things seem to work in concordance with other things. The weather patterns, uh, the tides, the insects, the birds, the other creatures, the plants, the soil. It all seems to work together in this incredible ecosystem. That's because it exists in harmony. This totally agrees with our human desire for harmony. We want things to work together in our lives. We want our lives to have a sense that God describes here as good. We want it. We desire it. And I've got to tell you, this is universal human truth. We all want harmony and we all want good. It's very difficult to go through your life especially when you face suffering and just go, that's life, without feeling like that's not how things ought to be. When you face the death of a loved one or true injustice and it affects you personally, you do not just go, that's life. You go, that's wrong. That's bad. Why do you do that? Why don't we just go, that's life, because everything came out of nothing and nobody? Why is it in every single person in the world a sense that there is justice? Because there is a God who made the world who said, it is good, which means that when in the absence of good, we go, it is wrong, it is bad, and it is evil. It's there for everybody to see, and yet often we are blind to it. So creation is not random but purposeful, but also a biblical worldview shows us that words create worlds. Words create worlds. Notice, and God said, repeated time and time again. He says in verse 6, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse and it was so. He speaks and it happens. He speaks and it happens. That is the power of the God that we consider here. I want to move forward now to the New Testament. Uh, we've been, I've referred to this last week and I've referred to this many times over In John chapter 1, in our parallel texts for Genesis chapter 1, we see that Jesus himself claims to have been there in creation as the creator, creator, co-equal with God the Father. That means Jesus is saying, when he spoke, the world came into existence. What does this mean? This means that the words of Jesus are the same words that spoke this world into existence. Yeah, because we might look at this and think, wow, cosmic scale. 
You know, this is talking about the universe being put together and the order and the ecosystems and everything that is added together to equal what we have today. And yet, Jesus, the man, the God who became flesh and dwelt among us, who lived like, who spoke words to human beings like you and I, is that same God with the same authority. We should highly consider then the authority of what we call God's word because words create worlds. When we come to this text, uh, often one of the great debates is, did it happen in six literal days or not? Uh, It seems as we read Genesis chapter 1 that there's six days, literal days, uh, that are in the text. Many uh, scholars, Christian scholars would say, well, it's it's in poetic language, uh, which means that we may not necessarily need to take it as being literal days, that it could be eras or amounts of time, as if uh, we may need to fit it into what we understand to be the earth to be maybe millions or billions of years old or the university millions or billions of years old rather than thousands of years old. I think actually though there's a bigger issue in the text than it being six literal days or not. Six literal days has a problem for those more um, what you might call yourself scientifically minded amongst us or those who might believe in the Big Bang Theory. However, I think something greater than this is if you're a problem with six literal days, you may have a problem with a God who calls the world into existence through his words. I don't think six literal days is that big of an issue compared to God calling the world into existence and Jesus being God who lived on this earth and dwelt among us. In fact, it's far better for us to start with, is Jesus who he says he is? He's our entry point into understanding a Christian worldview. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, that is the Son of God, the Creator himself, who lived, died and rose again, then everything is on the table to be believed. It may well be six literal days. And most of those that uh, purport purport, uh, it being many millions and billions of years often enter into that viewpoint with an atheistic or secular worldview. Now, unfortunately, I'm not a scientist, so I can't go into much detail on this, but I want us to face facts If there is a God who made the world with his voice, then he definitely could have made the world in six literal days and our scientific ideas may well be very wrong. That's entirely likely and possible. But I don't think this is something that we need to hang our entire Christian faith on. The most important thing in our text today is that God created it. Because you can argue till the cows come home, about people, about whether the earth was made in six literal days. And some of you might be able to put up a really good defence for that. But I would rather, as a Christian person, 
that you talk to people about whether Jesus has risen from the dead. Because a sixth literal day creation will not save anybody. But Jesus risen from the dead can save anybody. That's important for us to know. That's a bit of a sidebar. Let's continue on. So a worldview of creation. It is a worldview shaping document. I also want us to see the goodness and the beauty of creation in our text today. Uh, In the Doctor Who episode, Vincent and the Doctor, this follows the Doctor and Amy travelling back in time to meet our friend Vincent van Gogh in the late 1800s. And they where they discover to their dismay that Van Gogh sees little value to his own art. He thinks it's worthless and meaningless. To remedy this, the Doctor and Amy bring Van Gogh into the 21st century with their time machine to show him a museum where his art is on display more than 100 years later. They eventually walk into the Van Gogh exhibit where the Doctor asks the curator what he thinks of Van Gogh as an artist. With, with, a, with a means to improve the uh, self-worth of Van Gogh by getting him some praise. And the curator replies this, Big question, but to me Van Gogh is the finest painter of them all. Certainly the most popular great painter of all time, the most beloved. His command of colour, the most magnificent. He transformed the pain of his tormented life into ecstatic beauty. Pain is easy to portray, but to use your passion and pain to portray the ecstasy and joy and magnificence of our world, no one has ever done it before. Perhaps no one will ever again. To my mind, that strange wild man who roamed the fields of Provence was not only the world's greatest artist, but also one of the greatest men that ever lived. And as Vincent van Gogh breaks down in tears of joy, the curate curator is none the wiser that he just missed the person he claimed was the greatest ever. As the curator described the greatness, the unparalleled greatness of the artist Van Gogh, he was speaking to the very man he was praising. He missed the very object of his greatest admiration. And we can do the same. We can look at creation with great admiration, with great interest and intrigue and miss the one who made it in the first place. Beauty in the world around us is an apologetic for God. Again, in Paul's uh, treatment of the human problem in Romans chapter 1, he says it has been evident in every culture and in every time and in every people group that God is the creator because of the natural world around us and so man is without excuse. Beauty is a great apologetic for God because we look at something and go, it is good. Who said that first? God said that first. Shows that we are made in his image, as we see in verse 26. We make an evaluation on something because of its beauty. We do that because God made us in his image. We like beautiful things. We're attracted to them for their own sake. Why on earth would we be like that? Why would music? You can imagine, like, you can play a a guitar 
or you can play a piano. And gee, we've got a piano at home. And when you mash the keys, it sounds terrible. And I yell out, stop playing that. Because it's so annoying. And yet when someone plays one of the classic symphonies, the piano piece from one of the classic symphonies on that piano, my heart lifts because of the beauty, because the incredible nature of it. How does that happen? Apart from a God who wrote beauty into the human heart as something to appreciate and to think that it is good. And so when we think of beautiful things, when, we're, when our heart sings because things are lifted up in our sight, think of the one who created it in the first place. Think of the one who gave us music. Think of the one who gave us art. Think of the one who gave us the tree, the sun, the moon and the stars. The person that you appreciate for their beauty, think of the one who made them. It will put things in perspective. In a way... Uh, in our text, we see from verses 3 to 10, it's almost the canvas, if you will. It's the, almost the canvas for the great painting. We see parts of the world brought together, you know, light and darkness. Now, I just uh, some people say that, well, there's uh, no sun uh, until later on in the text, and so how can there be light? Well, it's interesting, and I've, been think I've thought about this many times, but if you move forward in the Bible to the book of Revelation... In fact, in the very last part of Revelation, it says there's no sun anymore. God's removed the sun. But where's the light? The light comes from God himself. God made light without the sun. That's easy if God is God. And that's how it will be eternally. We won't need the sun because God will give light to the world from himself. An interesting point. So if we see the canvas in verses 3 to 10, the kind of bare bones, you know, the earth and places where you can put colour and distinction on it, but it seems a bit pale. In verses 11 to 25, we get the painting. We get the creatures. We get life. We get trees. And right at the end, to cap it all off, we get humanity. This beautiful and unique creation of God. Our right response to the beauty of creation is worship. We've seen that it's beautiful. We also need to recognise that God's creation is good. Notice that God makes something out of nothing. It's a bit different to um, the Big Bang Theory because it's nobody cre uh, created uh, something out of nothing. But it, with God, we see that he created something out of nothing. It came out of his imagination. He designed, he ordered it, he made it. He is the architect. Now, this is very important when it comes to faith. Because when it comes to faith for you and I and relating to God, we are often interacting with him with asking him for things that we cannot do ourselves and we cannot see ourselves and we're speaking to someone we cannot see. It's all really by faith. Our relationship to God is all really by faith. And so to actually have a real relationship with him, 
we have to believe that he can make things out of nothing. That he can change the events in our lives. That he himself can make people believe. That he can bring people to faith. That he can knock on the door of someone's heart and they can open up and receive Christ. Which I think is a great way to describe becoming a Christian, to receive Christ. That God can do incredibly and amazingly and abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. That nothing is impossible for God. Why? Because the one who did this is the same God who you and I speak to personally. And I tell you, that is unheard of in in the ancient world. There was always a mediator. There was always some barrier between you and God. You couldn't get direct access. You had to go through a priest. You had to go through rituals. You had to reincarnate in a higher caste. You had to wait until death and beyond and then try again. Maybe 10, 100, 1,000 times. But Christianity offers direct access to God, the one who made it, the one who made something out of nothing, the one who declared it good. So the peak of the creation we see in verse 26. He says, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God made man. God made us in his image. What does that mean? That means like God, we are creative. Like God, we are made to create, to make things. It's as if the artist hands over a little brush to the object of his creation. He hands over a little brush and says, go paint. He includes us in his creativity. We'll cover this more uh, next week as we look at work. But God is in the business of having his people be creative. We also moral like God. Remember, God said that it is good and we are to say Likewise, to make moral evaluations on things and God makes moral evaluations on us. And we are also to be relational. I covered last week that God himself is a triune God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit, three persons but one God already in relationship. He doesn't need us yet, he desires us. And he made us in his image to relate to him and to one another in harmony. He made us to relate to our created world under his rule and to rule over it. So what does this mean? Well, this means we have an enormously high moral responsibility because we are made in the image of God, not to be fooled with, not to be messed with. That means Christians believe in the sanctity of life. That means Christians believe in the life and the inherent value made in the image of God as of the unborn baby as much as we do of the elderly person close to death. We don't put ourselves in the place of God or try to 
and to end things and, t- and take life when we shouldn't. We are very careful with these things as Christian people because we believe that all people are made in the image of God. It's very, very important to us. We have a very high moral calling from God. This begs the question, what happens when we fail this moral calling? If human beings are truly made in God's image, if this text is true, then we've got a lot to answer for, particularly in our current days. When we fail God's God-given moral responsibility, we separate ourselves from God's goodness and harmony and we get the destruction and disorder in the world that we live. We also realise from our text that if we are made in the image of God, that we are made for a unique relationship to our Creator. He has made us for Himself, for love. He's made us that we might know Him, that we might be fulfilled by Him, that the harmony in our lives and our relationships on earth would come from our relationship to Him. If the vertical is right, then the horizontal will be right. If our relationship to God is right and He's the creator of the heavens and earth and everything else, then our relationship to one another and the world around us will be right. And so then what we see in Genesis chapter 3 is when the relationship vertically is broken, everything else is broken as a result. In a letter to one of his friends, Vincent van Gogh spoke of an even greater artist than himself, one who crafts the lives of people but purposes them for immortality. These are van Gogh's words. Christ alone, of all the, of, of all the philosophers, magicians, etc., has affirmed eternal life as the most important certainty. certainty. The infinity of time, the futility of death, the necessity and purpose of serenity and devotion. He lived serenely as an artist greater than all other artists, scorning marble and clay and paint, working in the living flesh. In other words, this peerless artist, scarcely conceivable with the blunt instrument of our modern nervous and obtuse brains, made neither statues nor paintings nor books, He maintained in no uncertain terms that he made living men immortals. The great God who created the world and everything in it, his masterpiece is actually humanity. We should hold then a very high standard for how we treat one another. So we have looked so far at the worldview of creation, the goodness and the beauty of creation. And we finish, thirdly, with the great redemption of creation. We all realise now, as we look around at the world that we're in, that the good that God declared in Genesis 1 has been tarnished. There is bad in the world. There is disorder. There is despair. There is disharmony. But we also know that we all desire what is good. We all want good and we all want harmony. The Bible tells us, as I've mentioned so far, that God does come to restore 
and redeem this world and the people in it. He does it by coming himself in the man Jesus Christ. Matthew 17 tells us how God restores the goodness of the world through his Son. As Jesus goes up the Mount of Transfiguration, which is so named because when Jesus went up there with three of his disciples and when he got to the top of the mountain, he was transfigured. His clothes became so white that no one could bleach them to that level of whiteness and purity and began to converse with people who were long dead, Elijah and Moses. And then as the disciples are very confused and really don't know what's going on, they're looking on and trying to work it out, they hear this voice out of heaven. In in verse 5 it says, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Notice a moral declaration of good over Jesus. There hasn't been a moral declaration of good over a person like that since the Garden of Eden in Genesis. Jesus has come to restore and to redeem humanity out of our brokenness, our disharmony and our absence of good in the world you might call evil. And he does it through his own perfection. God himself, the great painter, entering his portrait, entering his masterpiece, entering what he has made to bring his goodness to bear upon us. Jesus himself, who was once uh, living on this earth and dwelling amongst us, has showed us the path to be restored to God. He did it on a cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus stepped in to humanity, becoming one of us, but taking the place both of the perfect son and restoring the good relationship between humanity and God, but also taking the place of the sinner. Incredibly, taking the evil, the disharmony, the ruinous attitude that we have, the way we ignore God and worship the creature rather than the creator. He took it all on himself on a cross, exhausting God's wrath in its entirety so that we might become the children of God as we were designed to be. Really my object for this sermon this morning is that you might worship God above all else because he's worth it. He is utterly worth it for he is good and his son is good. God is well pleased with him and if God is well pleased with Jesus and you have faith in him, then God can be well pleased with you too. God passes on, as we read earlier, his righteousness to those who believe in him.
in the uh, book Pinocchio. We find that Pinocchio was created by a loving father, Geppetto, when he gave him the promise of becoming a real boy. So this, this uh, doll is given the promise of becoming a real boy if he proves himself. He must be proved to be brave, truthful and unselfish. But being led astray by friends, he joins a travelling puppet show. Now without a father and someone to love him, he may look human, but he's not fully. He's missing something. His life is now spent searching for meaning and purpose, which, which he looks for now in fame and fortune in a puppet show. He finds himself locked in a cage and trapped, and his nose begins to grow, as we know Pinocchio well for. When he escapes and he looks to meet his needs, he is eventually drawn to a place called Pleasure Island, where again his nose begins to grow as he rejects his creator. In fact, he goes so far from his creator's intention that he begins to transform into a donkey. Pinocchio's change only comes when he discovers the mercy and grace of his father, Geppetto. Geppetto, upon learning where Pinocchio is, goes to the island in search of him, but is eaten by the whale monstro. When Pinocchio learns that his father is even willing to die for him, his heart changes. His father, still alive in the belly of the beast, is joined by Pinocchio and eventually they escape and are reunited forever. We find that it is through the love of his father that Pinocchio is transformed and becomes truly human, whom he was designed to be. When Pinocchio failed and he sought after Pleasure Island, his father came after him. In many ways, a godless world is a dehumanised world. It's one where the value of being made in the image of God is brought very low. It's one where our lives become disordered, a disharmony reigns, and we claim that bad is good and good is bad. And yet when we find that our Creator, even though we rejected Him, came for us, even was willing to die the death on a cross that no one wanted to have, but he did it for us. That has the power to change someone. That has a power to move someone out of living a selfish life to living a life for the purpose of glorifying their creator. And that is what he calls us to this morning. Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for your good news. We thank you for your love and your power, your kindness to us. We ask that you would speak to our hearts now. Remind us that you have done everything necessary that we might know you. You, our creator God, have come in the flesh in Jesus Christ. You lived, you died, you rose again. You ascended to the right hand of the Father. And now we ask that you would knock at the door of our hearts and that you would grant to us a willing spirit that we may let you in. We pray that in Jesus' name.